Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash Preacher Boys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind the scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacher boys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. Dan, thanks for joining me on today's show. Great to be here, Eric. Thanks for having me. I got your book a long time ago and have been waiting to have this conversation for a while. I'm excited it's finally happening. And um, yeah, I mean, first and foremost, uh, you have a pretty unique story. Um, and I think uh, it's interesting how much crossover there is between your your quote unquote, normal life and kind of your spiritual life, trying to figure out where you belong, where do you fit? So can you just give us a little bit of context to your background, like what your life growing up was like and how that kind of played into your experience of examining evangelicalism? Absolutely. So I'm originally from where I am right now, Honolulu, Hawaii. I'm biracial. My mom is Chinese American, been in Hawaii for generations going back to the 1800s her her side of the family um my dad is white although he passed away 15 years ago and he's originally from the bay area and my parents met here in honolulu Uh, i was the first born kid i grew up in a church plant in the suburbs that was really a house church model that was in my living room my parents weren't pastors my dad was a dentist um, and my mom was a school counselor but they were really involved in the church plant Um, so I grew up thinking church was acoustic guitars while I sit on the carpet and, you know, hang out with my friends. Um, and then things all changed for me in the first grade when my parents kind of discerned a call to do overseas uh, mission work with my dad's dentistry and public health um, background. And so we planned to go to Zaire, now Democratic Republic of Congo in Africa. But in order to go there, 
um, we were sent to a one-year training program in northern Quebec, Canada, so we could learn French uh, really far north where nobody speaks English, so you learn a lot faster. I went to the first grade in French, um, and then we moved to Zaire, where I was there for second, third, fourth grade, then came back to Hawaii for fifth grade. We're supposed to go back to Congo, but due to the civil unrest, we uh, took some time at the Presbyterian Church headquarters in Louisville, Kentucky, while we figured it out during my sixth grade year. Then we ended up in Kathmandu, Nepal, which has nothing uh, in common for us beyond just they need a dentist. So French um, didn't help you in Nepal? <laughs> not really. Had to learn a whole new language. Um, went to a missionary kid school there that was much more on the British system. And it was also much more interreligious. So I had classmates who were Hindu, Buddhist, um, as well as non-Christians. And then my final stop on the missionary kid tour was the Philippines, where I was a dorm student for the last three years of high school, because the school in Nepal didn't go all the way to high school. So 10th, 11th, and 12th grade, I was in Manila, a school called Faith Academy, and then went to Wheaton College after that. But essentially, this quest for home, the sense of not knowing where I belonged, um, was a big part of, I think, why I held on to what I could of my faith, because that was really the common denominator in um, all the different geographic spaces I was. And it wasn't until after college, I started to connect more of the dots that not only was evangelicalism a big part of who I was, but it was a common thread in terms of all the various places having some sort of evangelical expression of faith, although they varied um, by denomination and by geography, by race and all those other factors too. But they still had this kind of evangelical flavor and um, ethos, I guess you could say. So that's kind of my background and why in the book, I'm, I'm much more of a insider in terms of still staying within evangelical spaces. But I also understand that, like you said, my story is unique. And I think it's a big part of why I'm here. I think if you have a story that's really different, um, I would totally understand why you're in a different place theologically or in church land. Have you forgiven your parents for taking you from Honolulu to Quebec? Or is that still a sore spot? You know, my mom still feels terrible about that because um, it was hard for me. But, um, you know, it was one of many places where there was a, a adjustment and um, we did make some good good memories there. Um, so overall, we have a good we have a good laugh about it nowadays. But yeah, it was hard being the only Anglophone kid, but it was also first grade. So you can get by with a little bit right. of, of the language. Right. Yeah. That's a huge sore spot for me. Cause my, uh, my, my parents lived in Hawaii as well. Um, and my brother is five years older than me. So he grew up like his first five years in Hawaii. Then my mom got pregnant with me and was like, you California, here we come. And I'm like, I could have grown up in Hawaii. Like my whole oh, life could have been so different, but uh, luckily I've been able to make it out and it's beautiful. Um, and I always tell people like, if I could live anywhere, that would be uh, that would be the place for sure. Steering into this conversation about evangelicalism, like I think first and foremost, and on multiple interviews, I've heard you go on, they've had this question, but I feel like it's an important one. Um, when we say the term evangelical, it is loaded. Like that is a term, especially since, you know, uh, certain political uh, situations in America over the last couple of years, it's become a term that gets thrown out a lot. Uh, but a lot of times when we say a term, we don't take time to define it. So when you talk about evangelicalism, what are you referring to broadly? Yes. So you're absolutely right. It's a word that means so many different things. And those different things in a way are actually accurate in terms of, you know, how the word is used. It's just the confusion comes from the fact that there are so many different entities that can appropriately be labeled evangelicalism. And so when we say, well, it's this and it's not that, well, it depends who you're talking to. So I'm not trying to um, resolve that debate as much as just for the purposes of my book, talk about evangelicalism in a particular way. Um, and that is as a space where people make their spiritual homes. And if it's the type of flavor that features some sort of overlap between what you might consider the general definitions out there of evangelicalism. Kristen Dumais does a great job of, you know, saying that 
there are actually multiple evangelicalisms yeah. at once. You know, you've got the political brand, you've got the theological category, you've got this, you know, subculture uh, with Christian radio and CCM. And then you've also got this globally diverse um, movement of Christianity that's also you know, its name happens to also be the same thing, evangelicalism. So if you inhabit some sort of space as your spiritual home, um, then that's kind of what I consider evangelicalism to be. And so it might have all of those four features that Dumay talks about, or it might just have one of the four, but it's got some sort of flavor, either the theology, the culture, or, you know, something to do with the, the evangelical movement historically. Yeah. Yeah. There are certainly many different stripes of evangelicalism. And and there's also, I I think you put it well when you said, you know, for different people, depending who you talk to, their experience with it could have been negative or positive. And, you know, this is something I think that's difficult for us to grapple with, you know, even on a baseline, you know, being a male within the church is to experience a completely different church than to be female within the church. Um, Or, you know, when I spend time in other countries with, you know, Christians there or evangelicals around the world, they're what Christianity means to them uh, in terms of sacrifice or in terms of, um, you know, spirituality, like it all has very different flavor, but within the American cultural system, because the majority of people listening would be in the American context, there's been this boiling point uh, that it seems evangelicalism has hit where people are disenfranchised more than ever before. Um, Why do you think we've gotten to this boiling point? Do you think it's purely the political side? Do you think it's the pandemic making people step back and reevaluate? What do you think we can attribute that to? That's a great question. I think politics has a huge part to play in it, although certainly race, geography. um, I think one of the key points I make in the book for the purposes of what I'm writing about is I kind of try as best as I can to differentiate between two ways of looking at evangelicalism, even though there's certainly overlap and you're not, you know, completely compartmentalizing. But one way is to look at evangelicalism, the label, the brand, kind of what it means out in election season uh, campaign coverage versus something that's a little bit broader, which I would call the evangelical space that has a little bit more political diversity. It's not quite so um, American politics centered. Um, It's a space that includes kind of a wider variety of denominations um, besides just the ones you might think of as associated with the Republican Party, for example. Granted, it's still largely conservative politically and theologically and certainly um, has many of the same same foibles. But I think when we look at it as a space, then we're able to kind of locate ourselves with it. And it's not just, well, I don't like the label. I don't want to be identified with that. So now it has nothing to do with me. Well, if you're inhabiting, you know, a spiritual space where your denomination, or in my case, my employment, um, my relationships are all part of this. I can mm-hmm. I can stop using the label to identify, but that hasn't really you know completely absolved me of responsibility for the space that I inhabit. Mm-hmm. Um, I think certainly the pandemic has contributed even more to not just the polarization, but just kind of our awareness of how everything is politicized and technology too. The fact is, we identify one another often by where we land on things before we get to know somebody as a person. If we meet them online initially, it's kind of like, Hmm, should I follow you on Twitter? Are you one of my people or not? Oh, you are great. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Like I have no idea, you know, what else besides what you're posting, but that's kind of how we separate ourselves sometimes with, with technology. That isn't always the same where, whereas if you're in a old school in-person church environment here in Hawaii, especially I found that, you know, you're, you'd be surprised how much diversity there is within a church. Um, just, you know, people who go to the same worship space for years and don't realize how different they would be mm-hmm. if you kind of reduce them to what words they put out online yeah. about themselves. Right, right. Yeah, I love that idea of space, you know, and, and because there is, I mean, it, it really, using politics as an example, you know, when you look at news coverage or when you look at, you know, popular social media accounts, 
it seems like everyone is one extreme or the other. They're far right or far left. And we we tend to categorize everybody in those spots, you know, whether they're whatever angle we're talking about. And I see that happen within evangelicalism as well, where you have people who are, you know, they're the hardcore fundamentalists. And then you've got like the people that are, you know, whatever the other extreme is, the far left, no morals, no whatever the standard, what all the things that the other side says about them, you know? And I would say the majority of people that I talk to wouldn't align with either one of those. <laughs> like they're just going, just like politics, they're going through their day-to-day life. There's things that they really like, things they don't, that they leave to the side and they kind of go about their own version of it. Um, that being said, you also said, you know, being within a space and choosing not to claim a label doesn't absolve you of some of the responsibility you have acknowledging wrongdoing that's happening in that space. Um, this is another thing that I think becomes pretty controversial for people, um, especially in fundamentalist circles. There's a lot of sense of independence. You know, I'm I'm me. So if I didn't do something wrong, I have no responsibility for what evangelicals do or what other churches do. Um, where does that communal repentance or communal guilt maybe come into play, and how should we address that? Yeah, I think that. It's a hard sell for a lot of American evangelicals who have been taught that your faith is personal, your Jesus is personal, your sins are personal, and what Jesus did for you on the cross is, you know, maybe 99% personal. Maybe there's kind of a corporate develop, you know, a, a corporate element where, you know, you get you get to go to church with other people who have also had that personal experience. But a lot of times, you know, you're singing worship songs where the goal is how do we how do we get this room dark enough so it's just as individual as possible for me and God to do our thing and less distractions from other human beings is better because we really focus on the individual walk. And in the book, I talk about how that is not only weakness, it's also a strength. It's kind of the double-edged sword, two-sided coin of evangelical flavor or, you know, distinctiveness. You know, we're, we're really great at the personal individual stuff, which means that you know, things matter for application to our daily lives. Um, it matters that we take it seriously. And then there's a dark side to that, which is that we can really ignore or miss the corporate dimensions of what ta- is talked about in scripture, what is talked about in terms of just, you know, Jesus himself identifying with his own people, being baptized with his own people, um, you know, just all the different laments and psalms and things that um, the people of God do together and the way that the Bible so often speaks to groups. We lose a little bit of that in the English language where we just see the word you and we think it's singular. Um, but a lot of times it's actually the plural you, you know, the y'all, but it doesn't always come through when you're reading with that individualist lens. You think, okay, this is written to individuals when the original, you know, um, writer and audience was, was, was someone writing to a group. So I think part of, part of our awareness has to grow if we are particularly in a place that has that individualist independent streak, which is not universal. It's a very American thing. Um, Mm -hmm. As I found living in other places, it's not the default mode throughout church history, throughout scripture or throughout the world today. And Mm -hmm. the more we can understand that, the more we can start to see, Hmm, what is my responsibility to others and what are the other kinds of sins out there beyond just the personal individual ones? Um, Because sometimes we we miss those because we think, well, I didn't personally willfully do anything that could be chalked up on the individual sin list. So I'm good to go since, you know, my relationship with God is based on Mm -hmm. Jesus um, doing an individual uh, forgiveness thing for me. So the more we can talk about corporate collective not instead of individual, but in addition to individual spirituality, then the better off we'll be, I think. Like you said, it's very American. You know, it's it's this cultural, I mean, I mean, even the cult like down to the culture. Like I would say, even beyond just like the language and the translations, you know, I I think of spending I've spent a lot of time in places like India, you know, and and the the environment is so in the culture based on family, you know, there, there's this communal responsibility and it is very different. You know, when you come into places where like 
America's found on this, you know, individuality, it's very difficult to convey some of the messages, like a message that was written to uh, Jewish families in the cultural context where family was a very different unit than it is now. It's, it's difficult having that conversation. And, um, you know, what, you, you said something on a, on a podcast, uh, I think it was the Holy Post um, that you mentioned this, but I thought it was really interesting. And it, I thought about it a long time, but you said what you're passionate about will show up. Um, and so you mentioned like what's valuable to the church will show up in books and conferences in, you know, our trainings and our podcasts and things like that. Um, I think a question that a lot of people, including myself have had over the last couple of years has been the things that have been showing up the most, it seems like within evangelicalism, if that's what the church is passionate about, why, why stay, (laughs) you know, like why not leave this behind? Um, Why do you think so much, kind of speaking to that corporate, you know, guilt or repentance there, why do you think there's been so much awful floating to the surface over the last several years? Yeah, I would say that it's been more than just the last several years, although I can understand how, you know, what's current is really forefront on our minds because it really matters, you know? I'm glad you said that. That's That's a really important perspective. And again, it speaks to I just did it. I just did what we talked about, which is like, for me, the last couple of years, it's gotten really uncomfortable, you know? And then Mm -hmm. again, I think of the episode I released literally today um, on the show, as of this recording, talking about African-American experiences within the church, the perspective Mm -hmm. there would not be, oh, the last couple of years, things got really uncomfortable. (laughs) So thanks for for calling that out. Right. And, And I think it depends on so many different factors in the book I talk about, you know, I'm, I'm definitely on the older end of the millennial spectrum, maybe even Gen X, depending on on where you draw the line. But for me, the first major political event after um, college was the 2004 election. Um, And that was really huge for me in terms of asking questions, not just about John Kerry versus George Bush, but just why are Christians so passionate about this narrow list of political issues when you can find the other ones also in scripture? whether it's issues of war or economics or mm. caring for the planet. Um, so I think, you know, what, what's happening recently is not new. However, it does really matter. Just like yeah. in 2004, what's, what was happening in that year really, really mattered. And there was a lot at stake in that election and in what churches were preaching and teaching. Um, and, and some definitely stuck with the evangelical way that, that George mm. Bush put forward. And then, some of us had other questions about, well, what does it mean to, to look at other, uh, other ways that maybe aren't so overtly Christian, but can also be, you know, connected and, and realizing that all the different options have flaws in other significant ways too. So I think that in any American context that I've been part of in my short lifetime, it seems like we, we care about what's current, which we should. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot at stake, which there is. Um, doesn't mean it's going to end or that we'll solve it. But, you know, I, I think of somebody like Jim Wallace from Sojourners who influenced me a lot in my 20s, you know, seeing how he began in the Vietnam War era of his mm-hmm. kind of um, journey towards understanding faith and justice as integrated with scripture and Jesus. Um, and then seeing like, well, how many different political conflicts or clashes or, you know, movements have happened since, since the sixties and seventies. And there's always, there's always something current, but um, once you start to see the patterns, it's like, okay, there's something about being evangelical that lends itself to these debates as well as um, just the consternation that surrounds it all. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the fact that it happens time and time again, and I'm so glad you brought this up is, is, it is a symptom of deeper problems, you know, and you mentioned like the political cycles, like it isn't something new, you know, Kristen Dumais book, you know, you read, you read things surrounding Nixon, you know, you read things going even further back, you know, and it's, it's repeating itself over and over and over again. The, the Vietnam war conversation, you know, is very similar to a lot of conversations you started hearing around, you know, the, the post 9-11 era, you know, so mm-hmm. you see this coming up time and time again. And, uh, you know, I, 
you mentioned like there's something about being in that space that kind of lends itself to these discussions. Um, one way I've noticed a lot of people kind of pass off responsibility within evangelicalism, and I found myself doing this for a long time, um, would be, okay, they're not a true Christian, <laughs> or that's not truly what we are. Or, you know, someone would say, hey, you know, this fundamentalist pastor said this, or this, you know, or Joel Osteen was on TV and said this, or so whatever the name is they threw in and plugged in. The instant response was always like, well, they must not be a true Christian. You know, they don't, they're not mm-hmm. part of us. Um, it seems like in, you know, for me in the last few years, it got harder and harder to say like, yeah, because oh. they started coming into your own backyard or you started seeing something where it's like, oh yeah, I would agree with them, but here's this, here's this crazy thing they said. How do I justify that? Um, you know, do you, do you think there's a balance there between like drawing lines of division between, you know, someone who doesn't line up with your own values versus accepting them as part of your space, I guess. Like what's the what's the difference there between establishing those boundaries versus, you know, bearing some responsibility for like the crazy uncle in the corner who's saying really right. dumb stuff. Right. That's been a huge part of, you know, where this book came from, as well as just my own personal journey over, you know, the last couple of decades, I would say. And that's why separating things between the brand, the evangelical mm-hmm. brand and the evangelical space, it has been a helpful thing for me. Yeah. Um, may not be for everyone, but for me, it's, it's been helpful because when it's based on like doctrinal agreement or political agreement, um, then it's like, okay, well, I totally disagree with that guy. So we have different Christianities. We have different Jesuses, I guess. But then you start to see, okay, well, who do I agree with? Well, I agree with this person 75% of the time. And then on theology, okay, I'm like 60% with this, you know, and and you start to see it's not always like all or nothing. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, if there's someone who is just, you know, nothing in common, then that's pretty easy to say, okay, I think we're really coming from a different place. On the other hand, if we see things as sharing a space as, okay, this person is evangelical and so am I then we can have something in common that doesn't necessarily have to be tied to, you know, um, doctrine or politics, just, just the type of church we do. The fact that mm-hmm. we have worship lyrics projected on a screen as guitars strum and there's no hymn book or whatever, you know, that's something in common in terms of the way we worship, regardless of how we vote or how, what type of doctrinal statement we might sign. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's, it's helpful though, to try um, just for the own well, just for your own well-being of your soul, to surround yourself with um, whoever you can that's like-minded. Because I think when I felt the most alone, when there were weren't conversation partners and people around me, that's when um, I think I've been the closest to leaving. Because it's like, okay, everyone around me is thinking differently about this sermon, about this idea about this campaign about this fundraising strategy about this way of talking about god and okay where are my people i might have to leave this space to go find my people um and by and large i've been very privileged and fortunate blessed to not have to go too far in order to find my people but i also recognize that's because i grew up in a pretty moderate um multicultural evangelicalism that changed every few years whenever we moved. Um, So even though I didn't have that sense of geographic home, I also was gifted with that adaptability to recognize, okay, um, new environment, new group, and um, let's see who who my people are in this place. And it could change depending on when when I move next. So all that to say, it's a challenge when you do have folks, it's like, okay, I have something in common with you but something that's not even remotely in the ballpark. What do I do with you? Well, mm-hmm. are we inhabiting the same space or not? We, we probably have totally different views on the evangelical brand um, and that sort of thing. But if we're part of the same space and I do have the support around me, the energy and the desire to be part of making things better that include that other person, um, then that's the question of discernment of how to, how to make the space better. However, I don't tell people, you know, if you don't have the support, if you don't have the energy, if you don't have the desire to, you know, cultivate that space to be healthier, and it's really just 
a better move to step away or find a different space, then that's, that's what really sounds like it will make sense more than trying to kind of, you know, go against a brick wall. That's, that's not going to change. So it's a, it's a tough, it's a tough situation of discernment where, you know, when to invest in trying to uh, make a difference in the space you're in and when you just need to find a different space. Right. Yeah. It's, you know, it, it's, it's all perspective, right? I mean, that's something that, you know, even for you saying like, you had to move far to find your people. And then I think about like growing up in very fundamentalist background, you know, where it was like, if you're not wearing a suit and tie and going to church three mm-hmm. times a week and you're projecting your music on the screens and not using a hymnal, we would have been like, well, you're already outside of our bubble. You know, like you're already outside of Christianity. Like this is a step too far. Um, I'm, I am kind of curious just to double down on this. And I want to ask a little bit kind of just personally on the effects this has, uh, but when it comes to fighting for reform, what I see a lot of times is the camp that I used to be in, which was this very fundamentalist circle. It was antithetical to everything you just said, which is, you know, we need to take a stand. We need to revive the brand, make it this be more hard edged, like, and the people on the other side who are having these very, I think, needed conversations about justice and reform and, you know, I would say a more accepting version of like, we don't have to all be the same. Those people would get steamrolled by the other side, by this more aggressive side. And um, I guess, how do you, for, for the people who are in the position of trying to evoke that change through having these discussions and conversations how do you stand that ground firmly, especially when it comes to conversations of justice without, you know, turning into the thing you're kind of pushing back against? Like, how do you make those line, those clear stands for like, this is wrong and we're against this, or this is right. And we're for this without, you know, taking the role of steamrolling everyone around you and trying to drive the brand in your direction. In the mid 2000s, um, I was in my mid 20s and really wrestling with a lot of this stuff because we were at a church that, you know, Rebecca, my wife, and I knew that wasn't a, a long term fit for us because we felt a sense of call to ministry, but we also didn't want to just, you know, get credentialed with a denomination that was really different from what we believed, particularly on women in ministry, was mm-hmm. our big issue. But there were other ones too. And I think there was a shift that happened for us when we went from one way of doing things, which was kind of based on the quote from Gandhi of be the change you wish to see in the world. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of a guiding quote for for a little while where I was like, okay, you want to see change? Well, then be that change. And so we were trying to be, you know, be that egalitarian change that you wish to see in the complementarian world. Mm-hmm. And we made some progress, you know, the church we were at, it did start to have women preaching for the first time. Um, there, there were some good conversations that happened. And so in a sense, it was like, okay, we are being the egalitarian change that we wish to see in our complementarian pocket of the world. Um, and then after a while you realize, okay, well, it's more than just this particular congregation. There are documents and policies that mm-hmm. go back to the headquarters of the denomination, right. the history. Um, so there's only so much change that you can expect from being the change. Um, and so there was a shift that happened where from there it kind of went to, well, we're oranges in this world of apples. And some people might go from being apples to oranges But at a certain point, we also have to recognize many of them are going to stay apples and that's okay. And maybe what we need to do is go find the oranges, um, the other people who are like-minded. So it wasn't so much about expecting change to come from being a certain way, but also making a change for yourself in terms of finding the people who um, see the world a little bit more like you do. And that, that requires a bigger shift and we went through a whole multi-year multi-step with seminary pre-seminary after seminary you know denominational theological journey to to try to find that space and to find those people but again that requires a certain amount of privilege that not everybody has and so for some folks it's like all or nothing you're in a fundamentalist space where 
if you leave or you know explore other churches or ideas then that's it like you can't come back to this one place and so then you're you're forced to choose between what you're sensing the truth to be versus who your support relationships and you know human connections are and that's a really brutal um, heartbreaking choice to hear people making um, for me, I personally have not had to experience that stark of a choice. Um, so I can't say, you know, oh yeah, definitely leave all your people behind. It'll be worth it because you'll be, you'll be following the truth with the right, with the right ideas now. It's like, well, but at what cost, you know? So I understand, I understand when people stay and I understand when people leave, it's a really tough thing of discernment. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's. I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the personal effect of this because it's easy, I think, to it certainly probably wasn't easy to write a book on this topic, but I think it can be easy to read a book on this topic and, you know, philosophically think about it. Or, you know, what's the, you know, when it's not a real life situation, you know, to go like, well, here's the clear choice. Here's what you do, you know, or you're overreacting here or whatever that that thing is. And for me, what you described is like a punch to the heart. Cause that's literally how I felt, you know, over the last, really the last couple months, you know, um, it was this, it was this period of going from place to place, circle to circle going like exactly what you had said a while back, which is like what you're passionate about shows up, you know? And so like, I would get in a circle with, you know, coming from fundamentalism years ago, and then you would get into a group of people that would say, oh, we left that. And we left all the things that were negative about that. And then you dig deep into the roots and it's like, oh, you haven't changed from that at all. You just have cool music. <laughs> like you're still just as cutthroat and brutal. And mm-hmm. then you'd go into these other arenas and it's like, well, it's diluted so much of what I understood the Christian faith to be. What's the point? You know? And then you'd go into another circle and and for me, where I eventually came to, because I, I mean, I, st- I was one, it's one, one of the reasons I was interested in your book, you know, I made the choice to step away from evangelicalism, which was for me, it was a difficult decision, but it came to a point of looking and going, okay, if I'm judging things by their fruit, like the fruit of this, this label, you know, mm-hmm. seems to be largely rotten, <laughs> you know, and it, and, it, and it was hard for me to justify this is why it looks the way it does. What confuses me is when I sit and talk with someone like you, or I sit and I talk with a Beth Elson Barr or a Chris Nume or a Elise Fitzpatrick or a long list of people. And I'm like, you're so sane and normal <laughs> relatively. Maybe if I asked your wife or somebody, they'd be like, no, right. uh, like mine would, but, but it's okay. You've already declared it. I'm, there I'm you go. normal. So it's, it's been decided. There you go. It's official. Um, but <laughs> I sit down with people and I go, you're rational. You're, you care about the right things. You're advocating for justice in areas where there's been historically atrocious, you know, atrocious things happening. Um, but to me, it seemed like it was always the exception to the rule. There's like all these outliers. So um, I guess for your personal journey, like you've obviously stayed, you've done the work to to find the space that you're comfortable within. Um, you know, did you come close to stepping outside of it? Like, do you feel this strain? And like, how did this kind of journey like affect your personal like well being or your personal faith? I think there was a period where I stepped away from all ministry and church as much as I could because it was so fused together where church was ministry and ministry was church. And if the ministry wasn't going well, and if, you know, the worship service wasn't the way that I wanted it to be in my idealistic high standards way, then it would, you know, stress me out to the point where it was like, okay, how do I make sure that my income does not come from this and that I have other ways of providing for myself. Um, I think it really depends also if you're in vocational ministry, because there's also that economic career part of it too. Yeah. But um, having that space where, you know, I stepped off, I stepped off of church staff. I went into social work full time and I went to get my master's in social work. Um, 
thinking that that would be my heart's true home and you know it would really give me the space i needed to have another career have something that checked more of the boxes for me and then if i ever did church it would just be kind of this optional thing that i could keep at arm's length so that i could get out of there quick if i needed to without too many strings attached um and just for me personally i think what ended up happening um and i believe it was the holy spirit but it just can really vary depending on your own story so this is just my story but i think the longer i was in social work especially you know going through this program uh the site but i started full time and then i had to drop down to part time and so it took me a few extra years to finish and by the end of those extra years getting my msw um i was enjoying the path less and less um because i think it was less macro level less big picture the world should be like this and we want these values for humanity and it was much more into like the nitty gritty of the bureaucracy and your caseload and these huge systems um that you can't change any more than you can change a theological system so instead of a theological system that i was trying to distance myself from now you got this you know bureaucracy um world where it's like wow okay so if this is what it looks like for me to pursue justice and yet if i want to read a book on theology or do you know some sort of immersive spiritual practice that's on my own time and i would find myself like sneaking that in to work and being like okay how can i still get my work done but still like read this theology book or how can i find ways to integrate this because it's not going to be integrated automatically and i started talking to some of my pastor friends who were like hey you know um church ministry is hard and don't do it if you're not called to it because it'll suck even more however um one of the perks is this stuff that you're interested in doing it can be part of your job to read these books and and try out these spiritual practices and have these conversations and explore different ways of doing ministry um and so having had like a a little bit of space i think that's what gave me the freedom to come back when i wanted to come back and when i was ready to say okay that was a good season for me and i'm really glad i did that i'm really glad i was surrounded by coworkers and classmates who either did not share my faith or did not identify in a way that i could tell there were probably christians around me but just you know in certain spaces you just don't identify and so I, it wasn't part of the conversation unless i explicitly brought it up by the way i'm a christian so i think about it this way but having a deeper desire for that integration of faith and practice and belief and community that kind of drew me back to the world ironically the world of evangelicalism which to some listeners is like how could that possibly draw you back um but in my particular case it did and here here i am you know i don't love everything about my church my denomination the parachurch organization i work for um people i work with but it's it's good enough for now and for now this is this is where i am but it can it can really vary and i'm not saying that others have to follow this the same path that i did right when you need mealtime inspiration it's worth shopping kroger where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over $600 each week you can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points more savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping kroger worth it every time kroger fresh for everyone fuel restrictions apply Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% lean ground sirloin for 4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy 2 get 2 free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Well, before we wrap up, I think you raise a really interesting question, which is and I I think about it a lot. There's a lot of people I knew growing up and um still know who 
serve within ministries. They're questioning a ton. They're struggling with where they're at, like any, like from the very level, I mean, some struggling with their faith in its entirety. And there is that vocational aspect where, you know, I can't let anybody know I'm thinking about this. I can't tell anybody about this. I can't step away to study this because this this is my nine to five or sometimes, Mm -hmm. you know, five to nine or, you know, like a, you know, 12 to 12, depending where they're at, you know, it's, it's this very difficult place. And how can, how can ministries or pastors? So like I mentioned before, I think about probably 50% of my audience would be Christian. I think 50% would have left evangelicalism to some level, you know, for those that are within it, who are in ministries for pastors that are listening, who, you know, have people under them, like it's very likely they have somebody in their staff that's going through this, you know, silently. How can ministries kind of hold the rope for people who are examining and re-examining and questioning without having a culture where it is scary to come forward and talk about this, to share where you're at, to ask for a break, to deal with this? Um, how How can ministries themselves do better in the vocational side, like leaving that space open a bit? I think one practical way is just to support the continued exploration of theology and scripture. Um, and you have to kind of let go of some of that control. Like if your church mm-hmm. has a tradition or history of kind of being the gatekeeper who says, you know, whatever your theology is, it's going to come from us. Whatever your Christian community is, it's going to come from us. Whatever your books are, they're going to be approved by us. Whatever your you know types of prayer and um, spiritual practices are going to come through us. You know, I think that's really what leads to a lot of this pain and feelings of being trapped. I think what we try to do as much as possible is to say, okay, we are certainly going to identify with our you know tradition, with our faith stream, with our denomination, and you know we don't just believe anything. We have specific values that matter. On the other hand, we recognize there's a difference between what matters to us as a particular faith stream, as a particular local church, even within this bigger space of evangelicalism. And then, like I show in the book, I have this pie chart that shows how small evangelicalism is if you look at the global body of Christ in different faith streams and different traditions, you know, not just Protestant, but even if you start to include non-Protestant Christians, it's like huge. So we don't believe that we have a monopoly on Jesus or God or church. Mm-hmm. Um, we believe we have strengths and weaknesses like human beings. Mm-hmm. So there's certain things that we're good at that tend to be things that evangelicals are good at. And then other things where we're like, okay, we need to learn something from our Catholic and Orthodox or maybe mainline Protestant friends. Um, and we try to, create a culture and we don't succeed at this all the time, but try to create a culture that says, you know, if God calls you elsewhere, or if you, you know, discern that there's a better fit for you, whether you're on staff or just a congregation member looking for another church, like we believe God is there too. Um, Or at least it's very possible that, you know, if we're discerning this together and you really are genuine um, in your search that, that God could be leading you there and it could be to a different set of theological conclusions um, or a different style of doing church. Um, so it's, a lot of it just has to do with that shift from saying, okay, we care so much about this that we're going to hold it tightly, or we care so much about this that we recognize that we're just one piece of the puzzle. Mm-hmm. And what we really care about is the big picture of God's mission, the big picture of you know, the church in various times and places, the communion of saints um, and the work of the spirit, which transcends the walls of the church and the statements of denominations, even though those things matter, you know, we want to try to get it right when we can, but half the time we end up, end up changing it several decades later when we realized something was wrong. So to think that we finally arrived on, this is the correct doctrinal statement forever and ever, the correct way to translate the Bible. I think, I think we have to recognize that if we learn from history, um, things change and it's better to be, to be open to that while also recognizing the tradition you, you belong to. So having that openness and letting people know you are free to 
um, look for the work of God and follow Jesus in other spaces because Jesus is bigger than this space, bigger than this church, bigger than this denomination. We want you here. We hope you stay. We hope there's enough space here that you can thrive. Um, but if not, you might you might lose our church, but you're not losing God. You're not losing Jesus. Um, so it's okay. It's not like you lose all of your faith when you lose a church community or you lose um, belonging to a particular job. No. Well, and it doesn't, you know, I, I always bring this up too, especially on the vocational side, it doesn't help anybody if you're faking it until you make it, you know, if you do, if it doesn't align for you or if it doesn't make sense, or if you don't believe it, forcing yourself to stay, isn't great for the people that are underneath you who do believe it and want someone to guide them. It's not great for the people who are over you and, you know, and you're trying to serve better under, it, it doesn't help anybody, you know? And I think, right. I think, I think for a lot of people, just having that openness and like hearing you even say that I think is refreshing to people to, to hear that there is this opportunity to re-examine, to be open and honest and have this dialogue with people. I think that's really, really powerful. Um, I, I really appreciate you joining me for this conversation. And definitely if you're listening, uh, I have a copy here, grab a copy of struggling with evangelicalism. It is a really interesting read. Um, and I think very helpful for a lot of people, um, for those who have left, those who are struggling to stay, um, and those who don't even know where to start with this conversation. I think it's a really helpful resource, but, um, thanks again for all your hard work on the book, for taking the time to have this conversation and, uh, for all the insights you shared. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Eric. It's been great to have this conversation. Hopefully there'll be other other spaces where people can continue to wrestle with the pros and cons and the mixed feelings all around. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.